Turn, please, to the New Testament book of Philippians, chapter 2. Philippians, chapter 2, and verse 3. I want to talk to you this morning on the subject of Christian humility. If I were to ask you this morning to give a definition for humility... What would you say? I discovered when I began to think on this subject that it was not easy for me to give a simple, terse definition for humility. But the more I thought about it, uh, I came to this conclusion that humility doesn't have anything to do necessarily, with the way a person looks, with their uh, facial expressions, or their physical countenance. And here's why I came to that conclusion. I had made the mistake on occasions of being around a person for a little while, going away thinking to myself, Now, there was an humble person. He looked humble. I mean, he had that mild and meek and mousy look about him. But when I had an opportunity to get better acquainted with that person, I discovered that even though he looked mild and meek and mousy, he was not humble at all. In fact, I discovered that on occasions he was as mean as the devil. What would you say? A basset hound looks humble, doesn't it? But humility doesn't have anything to do necessarily with the way a person looks. We have before us today what I consider to be the greatest passage in all the Bible on the subject of humility. Let's read it, beginning at verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem the other better than himself. And let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself And became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name that is above every name. That name is going to be recognized one of these days. Every knee is going to bow. Every knee that's in heaven 
or in earth or under the earth, every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I have divided the passage under three headings in verses 3 and 4. I want us to see the exhortation and the means. In verses 5 through 8, I want us to see the example and the meaning. And then in verses 9 through 11, I want us to see the exaltation and the motive. And he's going to tell us now, if you'll be humble, you'll be exalted. So that ought to motivate us to walk humbly before God and men. Now, the exhortation in verses 3 and 4. He begins by making two negative statements. If you're going to be humble... You must eliminate these things in your Christian experience. Number one, let nothing be done through strife. Now, this word strife means contention, competition, confrontation, and it can mean combat. Did you ever know of it happening in a Baptist church business meeting. A brother over on this side brings it up, and it's going to cost the church about $2.37. But a brother over on this side never did like him in the first place. It seems that 20 years ago, they surveyed the property lines between them and this brother's fence was about three inches over on this brother's property so he hadn't liked him since and he stands up and commences to speak against the motion and ere long you could take Amos's plumb line and lay it right down the middle of the congregation and you know what you'd have on one side, you'd have the brother who brought it up with about half of the congregation on his side. And on the other, the brother who never did like him in the first place with about half of the congregation on his side. And they're going at it in contention, in competition, confrontation. And I hate to say it, but Baptist churches have not been altogether free of combat. Did you ever see it happen during a, during a, a woman's missionary circle? They've elected Sister Sally to be in charge of hospitality. And she has planned three of the monthly luncheons already. But she's made the fatal and unforgiving mistake of having pink lemonade at all three luncheons and a couple of the women are discussing it and one of them says have you noticed that we've had pink lemonade now for three months in a row and her friend says yes 
I've noticed it. I just hadn't wanted to say anything. And Sister Sally overhears the conversation, and she gets her feathers ruffled, and she says, Well, obviously you don't appreciate the hard work and the time that I've expended to make these socials sophisticated. And the ladies say, Now, Sally, we... We don't mean that at all, but after all, there are other beverages that Christian ladies can imbibe besides pink lemonade. We could at least have some yellow lemonade along the way. And Sister Sally says, if that's the way you feel about it, you just run this circle to suit yourself. And she stomps out of the room. Now, that would be hilariously funny if it were not tragically true. But now I'm going to make a confession. Can I make a confession here? I have always enjoyed a good fight. I was born with my right arm only partially developed, and I always had something to prove. If someone came along wanting to fight, oh, it was on. Now, I didn't always win, but I would fight. Bill Hill, who lived just across the pasture from me, he and I would get into a fight about every week, whether we were angry with each other or not. We just loved the competition. And the confrontation. Now, I haven't whipped anyone lately. Please, I haven't been in a fight in a long, long time. The Lord taught me a lesson. He taught me, David, if you're going to fight today, you ought to have something really worthwhile to fight about. There are some things that a Christian man ought to be willing to dig his heels in on, square his shoulders and his chin, and draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going to budge. I won't bend. This is where I stand. But look, I wouldn't spend five minutes of my time, not five minutes of my time, fussing and fuming and fighting over 99% of the stuff Baptist churches fight about. I wouldn't spend five minutes of my time. I don't care what color your drapes are in the nursery. Have it your way. Get yellow polka dots if that's what you want. I'm not going to fuss over something that's insignificant and wouldn't be worth a plug nickel to the kingdom of God if both of us had our way. Let nothing be done through strife. Now he makes his second statement. 
Let nothing be done through vain glory. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, and I wouldn't pretend to know all that this phrase, vain glory, could mean. But I remember something that my mama used to say about certain people in our community. She would say, I wish that I could buy her for what she's actually worth. I'd turn around then and sell her for what she thinks she's worth. And I'd make a million. You ought to sit up here on the platform in these churches. I go to about 40 different churches every year. You ought to sit up here on Sunday morning. And watch the saints enter the sanctuary. Such pomp and circumstance you've never seen in your life. Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like some of these. I'd like to buy some of them for what they're actually worth. And turn around and sell them for what they want people to think they're worth. I know Baptist preachers who can strut sitting down. <laughs> I'd like to buy them for what they're worth and sell them for what they think they're worth. Are you getting the idea here? Let nothing be done through a desire for vain glory. When glory comes to us, we rob the Lord of glory. To whom all glory belongs. Now let's transition from these two negative statements to the two positive statements. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. Now I'm going to make a second confession. You all seem pretty easy to deal with. I got by with that first confession, and so I'm going to give a second one. I've always had difficulty applying this principle in my own life. Esteeming the other person better than myself? You're kidding. Give me a break. I was born with my right arm only partially developed, as I mentioned earlier, my mom gave me no special attention because of that. But when I was five years old, about to start school, she gave me this little slogan. I am as good as the best. And I am better than the rest. Now, I don't know if that motivated me at all as a small child. But I do know this, that philosophy just won't work among the saints. The truth is, you and I are no better than the worst, were it not for God's grace in our lives. But how many of us have said, well, if I had been there, if that kid was mine, I tell you. Well, if you and I had been there, and if that kid had been ours, there's no telling what might have happened. And then he says in verse 4, uh, Look not every man on his own things, 
but every man also on the things of others. That is, have as your priority a desire to meet the needs, especially the spiritual needs of the people around you. Here we have the exhortation and the means. Put that aside now, and I want us to look at the great example of humility. He's going to tell us to look at Jesus, and here we'll see the real meaning of humility. Verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, this disposition, this spirit. Let this be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. If you want to know what humility is about, look to Jesus. He epitomizes, he personifies all that humility is. And then he makes these three grand statements about the Lord. I want you to see the humility of Christ first in his condescension. Now I want you to look at verse 6. Here is one of the grandest statements in all the Bible about who Jesus is. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Here is an all-inclusive, comprehensive statement regarding the essential character of Jesus Christ. It is a biblical affirmation of the deity of Christ. It is referring to the essential nature of God. Jesus Christ possesses the essential nature of God. Whatever characterizes God also characterizes Jesus Christ. And he did not suppose that his position there in heaven's glory was something that he had to hold on to tenaciously, but rather he was willing to give up the glory and the splendor of heaven and condescend to earth's shame. Now let me just point this out, that we do not mean to imply, nor does this text teach, that Jesus, when he came down from heaven to earth, divorced himself of his deity. No, he simply divorced himself of the glory and splendor of heaven, came down to earth. He was as much God in human flesh as he was God in heaven. He condescended down from his glory, ever-living story. My Lord and Savior came, and Jesus was his name. What condescension, bringing us redemption, that in the dead of night not one faint hope in sight. Jesus, gracious, tender, laid aside his splendor, Stooping to woo, to win, to save my soul. Hallelujah. The Lord came down. He came down to where I was. He came down to meet me at the point of my greatest need. He con. 
descended. Now, do you suppose that if revival were to come here to the church, if the Spirit of Christ were to permeate the hearts and the minds of God's children here, that some of us might have to get down off our high horse and come down to where the people are, come down to where the needs are, come down to where the squalor and the filth are, and like Jesus, seek to minister to those needs. That's what humility is about. Notice the second thing. Notice the conduct of our Lord while here on earth. He made himself of no reputation, but took upon him the form of a servant. Our Lord said, I came not down from heaven to be ministered unto. I came to minister. He got down on his knees with a pan of water and a towel and washed his disciples' feet and said, If I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, how much more ought ye to wash one another's feet? The lesson is not on foot washing. The lesson is on humility. God's children need to learn how to serve one another. But notice the third thing. Notice the crucifixion of our Lord. Verse 8 says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now I want you to notice the closeness of the two words, humbled and obedient. Our Lord ultimately humbled himself to obey the will of God, his Father. I learned how to plow a mule when I was 12 years old. Did any of you ever plow a mule? My Uncle Rufus Clark taught me. Uncle Rufus was an elderly man. He had flowing white hair and a red face. And he had a natural aversion to seeing his grandsons or his nephews enjoying themselves after school uh, in the evenings. And if he was at home, he would call us up and he would uh, harness the mules and he would take us out to his cornfield and he would have us plow his corn for him. And Uncle Rufus would always stand over by the fence row under the shade. And he would kind of snort when we'd come by. And he'd say, I hope that you boys realize that I'm not charging you anything for this valuable training. And sure enough, he wasn't charging us anything, nor was he paying us anything. And I learned how to plow a mule. I learned that a good mule is one 
When you speak to him, you say, get up. This is one of the few times now, students, where it's proper to say get instead of get. G-I-T, get up. That's what you say to a mule. A good mule is one when you speak to him and say get up. He will lean his weight and strength into the harness, tighten the traces, and he will pull the plow straight down the row in humble obedience to the voice of authority. But I learned that all mules are not good mules. Some of them are haughty and heady and high-minded. And when you speak to them and say, get up, they'll back or balk, or they'll turn to the right or left and plow up standing corn in high-handed rebellion against authority. Now, you please forgive my analogy of comparing the saints to a brute beast, but surely you recognize the point of the illustration. An humble Christian is one who has learned how to recognize the voice of the master and humbles himself and says, Yes, Lord, yes. That's what it means to be humble. Jesus obeyed even unto death. Now I want you to move from the example and I want you to see the exaltation. Verse 9 says, Wherefore? God also hath highly exalted him. That is, because of his condescension, he came down from heaven's glory to earth's shame. Because of his conduct, he made himself of no reputation. Because of his crucifixion, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. For these reasons, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, a name at which one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Now, what does this tell us about humility? It tells us that the way up in exaltation is first the way down in humility. If you want to be exalted, you must be humble. You must condescend. You must serve. And you must obey the Master. Once the disciples argued among themselves, who will be the greatest among us? Jesus said, let him that will be great among you be servant of all. I wonder today, have you learned these lessons? Have you learned to let nothing be done through strife or vainglory? Have you learned to follow the example of your Lord to come down and to serve and to obey. 
And let us trust the Lord to exalt us if he pleases. Let us not, when we go to a banquet, take one of the uppermost places. The Lord may have invited someone more prominent than us. And when that person arrives, he'll have to ask us to move to the back. Rather, let us take an ordinary seat. And if the host, if the master is pleased, he might recognize us and invite us to come up to the front. Oh, beloved, let us learn to let God be in charge of exaltation. Let us be in charge of humility in our life. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would write these things indelibly before our eyes and upon our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen.